Chapter 18 of She. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. She by A. Trider Haggard. Chapter 18. Go, woman. Then followed a silence of a minute or so, during which she appeared, if one might judge from the almost angelic rapture of her face, for she looked angelic sometimes to be plunged into a happy ecstasy. Suddenly, however, a new thought struck her, and her expression became the very reverse of angelic. "'Almost had I forgotten,' she said. "'That woman, Eustin, what is she to Calicrates? His servant, or—' And she paused, and her voice trembled. I shrugged my shoulders. "'I understand that she's wed to him, according to the custom of the Amahagger,' I answered. "'But I know not.' Her face grew dark as a thundercloud. Old as she was, Aisha had not outlived jealousy. "'Then there is an end,' she said. "'She must die even now.' "'For what crime?' I asked, horrified. "'She is guilty of naught that thou art not guilty of thyself, O Aisha. "'She loves the man, and he has been pleased to accept her love. "'Where, then, is her sin?' "'Truly, O Holly, thou art foolish.' she answered, almost petulantly. "'Where is her sin? Her sin is that she stands between me and my desire. Well, I know that I can take him from her, for dwells there a man upon this earth, O Holly, who could resist me if I put out my strength? Men are faithful for so long only as temptations pass them by. If the temptation be but strong enough, then will the man yield, for every man, like every rope, hath his breaking strain, and passion is to men what gold and power are to women, the weight upon their weakness.' Believe me, ill will it go with mortal woman in that heaven of which thou speakest, if only the spirits be more fair. For their lords will never turn to look upon them, and their heaven will become their hell. A man can be bought with a woman's beauty, if it be but beautiful enough, and woman's beauty can ever be bought with gold, if only there be gold enough. So was it in my day, and so it will be to the end of time. The world is a great mart, my holly, where all things are for sale to whom who bids the highest in the currency of our desires. These remarks, which were as cynical as might have been expected from a woman of Asia's age and experience, jarred upon me, and I answered testily that in our heaven there was no marriage or giving in marriage. "'Else would it not be heaven, dost thou mean?' she put in. "'Fie on thee, Holly, to think so ill of us poor women. Is it then marriage that marks the line between the heaven and thy hell? But enough of this. This is no time for disputing and the challenge of our wits. Why dost thou always dispute?' Art thou also a philosopher of these latter days? As for this woman, she must die, for though I can take her lover from her, yet while she lived he might think tenderly of her, and that I cannot away with. No other woman shall dwell in my lord's thoughts. My empire shall be all my own. She hath had her day. Let her be content, for better is an hour with love than a century of loneliness. Now the night shall swallow her. Nay, nay, I cried, it will be a wicked crime and from a crime naught comes but what is evil. For thine own sake do not this deed. Is it then a crime, O foolish man, to put away that which stands between us and our ends? Then is our life one long crime, my holly, since day by day we destroy that we may live, since in this world none said the strongest can endure. Those who are weak must perish. The earth is to the strong, and the fruits thereof. For every tree that grows a score shall wither, 
that the strong one may take their share. We run to place and power over the dead bodies of those who fail and fall. I we win the food we eat from out the mouths of starving babes. It is the scheme of things. Thou sayest too that a crime breeds evil, but therein thou dost lack experience, for out of crimes come many good things, and out of good grows much evil. The cruel rage of the tyrant may prove a blessing to the thousands who come after him, and the sweet-heartedness of a holy man may make a nation slaves. Man doeth this and doeth that from the good or evil of his heart, but he knoweth not to what end his moral sense doth prompt him, for when he striketh he is blind to where the blow shall fall, nor can he count the airy threads that weave the web of circumstance. Good and evil, love and hate, night and day, sweet and bitter, man and woman, heaven above and earth beneath, all these things are necessary, one to the other, and who knows the end of each? I tell thee that there is a hand of fate that twines them up to bear the burden of its purpose, and all things are gathered in that great rope to which all things are needful. Therefore doth it not become us to say this thing is evil and this good, or the dark is hateful and the light lovely? For to other eyes than ours the evil may be the good and the darkness more beautiful than the day, or all alike be fair. Hearest thou, my holly? I felt it was hopeless to argue against casuistry of this nature, which if it were carried to its logical conclusion would absolutely destroy all morality as we understand it. But her talk gave me a fresh thrill of fear, for what may not be possible to a being who, unconstrained by human law, is also absolutely unshackled by a moral sense of right and wrong, which however partial and conventional it may be, is yet based, as our conscience tells us, upon the great wall of individual responsibility that marks off mankind from the beasts. But I was deeply anxious to save Eustane, whom I liked and respected, from the dire fate that overshadowed her at the hands of her mighty rival. So I made one more appeal. Asia, I said, thou art too subtle for me, but thou thyself hast told me that each man should be a law unto himself, and follow the teaching of his heart. Hath thy heart no mercy towards her whose place thou wouldst take? Bethink thee, as thou sayest, though to me the thing is incredible, he whom thou desirest has returned to thee after many ages, and but now thou hast, as thou sayest also, wrung him from the jaws of death. Wilt thou celebrate his coming by the murder of one who loved him, and whom perchance he loved? One at the least who saved his life for thee, when the spears of thy slaves would have made an end thereof. Thou sayest also that in past days thou didst grievously wrong this man, that with thine own hand thou didst slay him because of the Egyptian Amenitas whom he loved. How knoweth that, O stranger? How knoweth thou that name? I spoke it not to thee, she broke in with a cry, catching at my arm. Perchance I dreamed it, I answered, strange dreams do hover about these caves of Kor. It seems that the dream was, indeed, a shadow of the truth. What came to thee of thy mad crime? Two thousand years of waiting, was it not? And now wouldst thou repeat the history? Say what thou wilt, I tell thee, that evil will come of it. For to him who doeth, at the least, good breeds good and evil evil even though in after days out of evil cometh good. Offences must needs come, but woe to him by whom the offence cometh. So said that Messiah of whom I spoke to thee, and it was truly said, If thou slayest this innocent woman, I say unto thee that thou shalt be accursed, and pluck no fruit from thine ancient tree of love. Also what thinkest thou? How will this man take thee red-handed from the slaughter of her who loved and tended him? As to that, she answered, I have already answered thee. Had I slain thee as well as her, yet should he love me, Holly, because he could not save himself therefrom any more than thou couldst save thyself from dying if by chance I slew thee, O Holly. 
and yet maybe there is truth in what thou dost say, for in some way it presseth on my mind. If it may be, I will spare this woman, for have I not told thee that I am not cruel for the sake of cruelty? I love not to see suffering or to cause it. Let her come before me, quick now, before my mood changes. And she hastily covered her face with its gauzy wrappings. Well pleased to have succeeded even to this extent, I passed out into the passage, and called to Eustain, whose white garment I caught sight of some yards away huddled up against one of the earthenware lamps that were placed at intervals along the tunnel. She rose and ran towards me. "'Is my lord dead? Oh, say not that he is dead!' she cried, lifting her noble-looking face, all stained as it was with tears, up to me with an air of infinite beseeching that went straight to my heart. "'Nay, he lives.' I answered. She has saved him. Enter. She sighed deeply, entered, and fell upon her hands and knees, after the custom of the Amahaga people, in the presence of the dread she. Stand, said Asia in her coldest voice, and come hither. Stan obeyed, standing before her with bowed head. Then came a pause, which Asia broke. Who is this man? she said, pointing to the sleeping form of Leo. The man is my husband, she answered in a low voice. Who gave him to thee for a husband? I took him according to the custom of our country, O she. Thou hast done evil, woman, in taking this man, who is a stranger. He is not of thine own race, and the custom fails. Listen, perchance thou didst this thing through ignorance. Therefore, woman, do I spare thee, otherwise hadst thou died. Listen again. Go from hence, back to thine own place, and never dare to speak to or set thine eyes upon this man again. He is not for thee. Listen a third time. If thou breakest this, my lord, that moment thou diest. Go. But Eustain did not move. Go, woman! Then she looked up, and I saw that her face was torn with passion. Nay, O oh she, I will not go she answered in a choked voice. The man is my husband, and I love him. I love him, and I will not leave him. What right hast thou to command me to leave my husband? I saw a little quiver pass down Asia's frame, and shuddered myself, fearing the worst. Be pitiful, I said in Latin. It is but nature working. I am pitiful, she answered coldly in the same language. Had I not been pitiful, she had been dead even now. Then addressing Eustain, Woman, I say to thee, go before I destroy thee where thou art. I will not go. He is mine, mine, she cried in anguish. I took him and I saved his life. Destroy me then if thou hast the power. I will not give thee my husband. Never, never. Asia made a movement so swift that I could scarcely follow it, but it seemed to me that she lightly struck the poor girl upon the head with her hand. I looked at Eustan, and then staggered back in horror, for there upon her hair, right across her bronze-like tresses, were three finger-marks white as snow. As for the girl herself, she had put her hands to her head and was looking dazed. "'Great heavens!' I said, perfectly aghast at the dreadful manifestation of human power. But she did but laugh a little. "'Thou thinkest, poor ignorant fool,' she said to the bewildered woman, "'that I have not the power to slay.' "'Stay, there lies a mirror,' and she pointed to Leo's round shaving-glass that had been arranged by Job with other things upon his portmanteau. 
"'Give it to this woman, my holly, and let her see that which lies across her hair, and whether or no I have power to slay.' I picked up the glass and held it before Eustin's eyes. She gazed, then folded her hair, then gazed again, and then sank upon the ground with a sort of sob. "'Now wilt thou go, or must I strike a second time?' asked Asia in mockery. "'Look, I have set my seal upon thee, so that I may know thee till thy hair is all as white as it. "'If I see thy face again, be sure, too, that thy bones shall soon be whiter than my mark upon thy hair.' Utterly awed and broken down, the poor creature rose, and marked with that awful mark, crept from the room, sobbing bitterly. "'Look not so frightened, my holly,' said Aisha, when she had gone. "'I tell thee that I deal not in magic. There is no such thing.' "'Tis only a force that thou dost not understand. "'I marked her to strike terror to her heart, else must I have slain her. "'And now I will bid my servants to bear my lord Callicrates to a chamber near mine own, "'that I may watch over him and be ready to greet him when he wakes. "'And the two shalt thou come, my holly, and the white man thy servant. "'But one thing remember at thy peril. "'Nought shalt thou say to Callicrates as to how this woman went, "'and as little as may be of me. "'Now I have warned thee.' and she slid away to give her orders, leaving me more absolutely confounded than ever. Indeed, so bewildered was I, and racked and torn with such a succession of various emotions, that I began to think that I must be going mad. However, perhaps fortunately I had but little time to reflect, for presently the mutes arrived to carry the sleeping Leo and our possessions across the central cave, so for a while all was bustle. Our new rooms were situated immediately behind what we used to call Aisha's boudoir, the curtained space where I had first seen her. Where she herself slept I did not then know, but it was somewhere quite close. That night I passed in Leo's room, but he slept through it like the dead, never once stirring. I also slept fairly well, as indeed I needed to do, but my sleep was full of dreams of all the horrors and wonders I had undergone. Chiefly, however, I was haunted by that frightful piece of diablerie by which Aisha left her finger-marks upon her rival's hair. There was something so terrible about her swift, snake-like movement, and the instantaneous blanching of that threefold line, that if the results to stern had been much more tremendous, I doubt if they would have impressed me so deeply. To this day I often dream of that awful scene, and see the weeping woman, bereaved and marked like Cain, cast a last look at her lover and creep from the presence of her dread queen. Another dream that troubled me originated in the huge pyramid of bones. I dreamed they all stood up and marched past me in thousands and tens of thousands, in squadrons, companies, and armies, with the sunlight shining through their hollow ribs. On they rushed across the plain to core their imperial home. I saw the drawbridges fall before them, and heard their bones clank through the brazen gates. On they went, up the splendid streets, on past fountains, palaces, and temples such as the eye of man never saw. But there was no man to greet them in the market-place, and no woman's face appeared at the windows. Only a bodiless voice went before them, calling, Fallen is imperial core, fallen, fallen, fallen. On, right through the city, marched those gleaming phalanxes, and the rattle of their bony tread echoed through the silent air as they pressed grimly on. They passed through the city and clung the wall, and marched along the great roadway that was made upon the wall till at length they once more reached the drawbridge. Then, as the sun was sinking, they returned again towards the sepulchre, 
and luridly his light shone in the sockets of their empty eyes, throwing gigantic shadows of their bones that stretched away and crept and crept like huge spider's legs as their armies wound across the plain. Then they came to the cave, and once more, one by one, flung themselves in unending files through the hole into the pit of bones, and I awoke shuddering to see she, who had evidently been standing between my couch and Leo's, glide like a shadow from the room. After this I slept again, soundly this time, till morning, when I awoke much refreshed and got up. At last the hour drew near at which, according to Asia, Leo was to awake, and with it came she herself, as usual, veiled. "'Thou shalt see, O Holly,' she said. "'Presently shall he awake in his right mind, the fever having left him.' Hardly were the words out of her mouth, when Leo turned round and stretched out his arms, yawned, opened his eyes, and, perceiving a female form bending over him, threw his arms round her and kissed her, mistaking her, perhaps, for Eustin. At any rate, he said in Arabic, "'Hello, Eustin, why have you tied your head up like that? Have you got the toothache?' And then in English, "'I say, I'm awfully hungry. Why, Job, you old son of a gun, where the deuce have we got to now, eh?' "'I am sure I wish I knew, Mr. Leo,' said Job, edging suspiciously past Asia, whom he still regarded with the utmost disgust and horror, being by no means sure that she was not an animated corpse. "'But you mustn't talk, Mr. Leo. You've been very ill, and given us a great deal of anxiety, and if this lady, looking at Asia, would be so kind as to move, I'll bring you your soup.' This turned Leo's attention to the lady, who was standing by in perfect silence. "'Hello,' he said. "'That's not you, Stain. Where's you, Stain?' Then for the first time Asia spoke to him, and her first words were a lie. "'She has gone from hence upon a visit,' she said, "'and behold, in her place am I here as thine handmaiden.' Asia's silver notes seemed to puzzle Leo's half-awakened intellect, as also did her corpse-like wrappings. However, he said nothing at the time, but drank off his soup greedily enough, then turned over and slept again till the evening. When he woke for the second time, he saw me and began to question me as to what had happened, but I had to put him off as best I could till the morrow, when he awoke almost miraculously better. Then I told him something of his illness and of my doings, but as Asia was present I could not tell him much except that she was queen of the country and well disposed towards us, and that it was her pleasure to go veiled. For though, of course, I spoke in English, I was afraid that she might understand what we were saying from the expression of our faces, and besides, I remembered her warning. On the following day, Leo got up almost entirely recovered. The flesh wound in his side was healed, and his constitution, naturally a vigorous one, had shaken off the exhaustion consequent on his terrible fever with a rapidity that I can only attribute to the effects of the wonderful drug which Asia had given to him, and also to the fact that his illness had been too short to reduce him very much. With his returning health came back full recollection of all his adventures up to the time when he had lost consciousness in the marsh, and of course of Eustan also, to whom I had discovered he had grown considerably attached. Indeed he overwhelmed me with questions about the poor girl, which I did not dare to answer, for after Leo's first awakening she had sent for me, and again warned me solemnly that I was to reveal nothing of the story to him, delicately hinting that if I did it would be the worse for me. She also, for the second time, cautioned me not to tell Leo anything more than I was obliged about herself, saying that she would reveal herself to him in her own time. Indeed, her whole manner changed. 
After all that I had seen, I had expected that she would take the earliest opportunity of claiming the man she believed to be her old-world lover, but this, for some reason of her own, which was at the time quite inscrutable to me, she did not do. All that she did was to attend to his wants quietly, and with a humility which was in striking contrast with her former imperious bearing, addressing him always in a tone of something very like respect, and keeping him with her as much as possible. Of course his curiosity was as much excited about this mysterious woman as my own had been, and he was particularly anxious to see her face, which I had, without entering into particulars, told him was as lovely as her form and voice. This in itself was enough to raise the expectations of any young man to a dangerous pitch, and had it not been that he had not as yet completely shaken off the effects of illness and was much troubled in his mind about Eustan, of whose affection and brave devotion he spoke in touching terms, I have no doubt that he would have entered into her plans and fallen in love with her by anticipation. As it was, however, he was simply wildly curious, and also, like myself, considerably awed, for though no hint had been given him by Aisha of her extraordinary age, he not unnaturally came to identify her with the woman spoken of on the potsherd. At last, quite driven into a corner by his continual questions, which he showered on me while he was dressing on the third morning, I referred him to Aisha, saying with perfect truth that I did not know where Eustan was. Accordingly, after Leo had eaten a hearty breakfast, we adjourned into she's presence, for her mutes had orders to admit us at all hours. She was, as usual, seated in what, for want of a better term, we called her boudoir, and on the curtains being drawn she rose from her couch, and stretching out both hands, came forward to greet us, or rather Leo, for I, as may be imagined, was now quite left in the cold. It was a pretty sight to see her veiled form gliding towards a sturdy young Englishman, dressed in his grey flannel suit, for though he is half a Greek in blood, Leo is, with the exception of his hair, one of the most English-looking men I ever saw. He has nothing of the subtle form or slippery manner of the modern Greek about him, though I presume that he got his remarkable personal beauty from his foreign mother, whose portrait he resembles not a little. He is very tall and big-chested, and yet not awkward as so many big men are, and his head is set upon him in such a fashion as to give him a proud and vigorous air, which is well translated in his Amahaga name of the lion. "'Greeting to thee, my young stranger lord,' she said in her softest voice. "'Right glad am I to see thee upon thy feet. "'Believe me, had I not saved thee at the last, "'never wouldst thou have stood upon those feet again. "'But the danger is done, and it shall be my care,' "'and she flung a world of meaning into the words, "'that it doth return no more.' "'Leo bowed to her, and then, in his best Arabic, "'thanked her for all her kindness and courtesy "'and caring for one unknown to her. "'Nay,' she answered softly, "'ill could the world spare such a man.' Beauty is too rare upon it. Give me no thanks, who am made happy by thy coming. Humph, old fellow, said Leo aside to me in English. The lady is very civil. We seem to have tumbled into clover. I hope that you've made the most of your opportunities. By Jove, what a pair of arms she has got! I nudged him in the ribs to make him keep quiet, for I caught sight of a gleam from Asia's veiled eyes, which were regarding me curiously. I trust, went on Asia that my servants have attended well upon thee. If there can be comfort in this poor place, be sure it waits on thee. Is there aught that I can do for thee more? Yes, O oh she, answered Leo hastily. I would fain know whether the young lady who is looking after me has gone to. Ah, said Asia, the girl, yes, I saw her. Nay, I know not. She said that she would go, I know not whither. 
Perchance she will return, perchance not. It is wearisome waiting upon the sick, and these savage women are fickle. Leo looked both sulky and distressed by this intelligence. It's very odd, he said to me in English, and then, addressing she, I cannot understand, he said. The young lady and I, well, in short, we had a regard for each other. Asia laughed a little very musically, and then turned the subject. End of chapter 18